Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. Forbes Sports Money Podcast is brought to you by WordPress.com. More websites run on WordPress than on any other platform. Create your blog or small business website today and get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash Forbes. That's wordpress.com slash Forbes. This is Forbes Sports Money on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. This show is all about the business of sports. Today, my guest is Chris Smith. Chris is the dean of college sports business coverage here at Forbes. You could follow Chris on Twitter at ChrisSmith813. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited to be here. Chris, the NCAA men's basketball tournament has been going on for decades now. When did it really become the business of March Madness? The funny thing about that, Mike, is the tournament's been going on since 1939, but I think for about four decades after that, it wasn't even the biggest tournament in the country. For a long time, the National Invitation Tournament, the NIT, was the most pre- prestigious college basketball tournament there was. Uh, and it wasn't until about the mid-70s when the NCAA tournament even became known as March Madness. Uh, I think a lot of people give credit to Brent Musburger for coining the term. And then, you know, in the late 70s, in 1979, you had Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson in the national championship game. And I think a lot of people see that as being the big moment when the NCAA tournament took over as the number one college basketball tournament in the country. The business side of things I don't think picks up for quite a while after that, though. About a decade later, in 1991, um, CBS bought the TV rights for the entire tournament. Till then, it was kind of split up among a few different rights holders. Uh, and they spent a billion dollars uh, over seven years to have the full package. I think that's when you see first that, you know, that big billion-dollar figure, the beginning of this you know, major business in college basketball, and that's only scaled up in the years since. Uh, so in 2011, Turner joins in. Turner and CBS, they spend uh, $11 billion almost over 14 years. Uh, and then last year was the latest extension, and that was an eight-year deal, $8.8 billion. So Turner and CBS spending more than a billion dollars a year on average for the NCAA tournament. You know, I remember watching that Indiana State-Michigan State game. Magic was with Michigan State, and uh, uh, Larry Bird was with Indiana State. And it, you know, it was such a hyped-up game two best players and I remember Michigan State winning that really doubling up tripling team Larry Bird shutting him down that game he had a he had a terrible game scoring wise and of course Magic went on after that to having an unbelievable career with the Lakers you know you, you look at what the tournament is today and the economics of it can you break down for us a little bit how big it is money-wise, and, and where the money comes from. So last year, estimates are that March Madness generated about a billion dollars for the NCAA, uh, and that obviously doesn't include the new TV deal, which is going to be more than a billion dollars a year uh, alone. And so of that billion dollars, about uh, 75-80% is coming from TV. Uh, so that's the TV deal with CBS and Turner. 
Uh, and then the remaining about quarter or so is a combination of a ton of things. Uh, so you have radio rights, you have sponsorship sales. Every time you watch a game, you'll see along the sides of the court, sponsor boards there. Uh, the NCAA has tickets that they sell um, and suite sales. And so that all together packages about 25 30% of the total revenue. When it comes to ticket sales, do most of the tickets go to alumni of the school or, or people that currently go to the schools, or are they sold to the public? It's a combination, and I think it depends on what level of game that you're looking at. Obviously, a lot of the early games, when you see the crowds are not very full, and you see that it's a lot of alumni who are going to those games, either traveling fans, fans who happen to be in the city, or even active students who fly out to watch the games and watch their team uh, in the tournament. And so a lot of the NCAA tickets wind up being bought by the schools and then resold to their people. And then when you see you know, the major games, when you get down to the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, down to the championship game, those are the tickets where you'll see huge prices on the secondary market on sites like StubHub. Uh, and that you'll get still you know, plenty of alumni and plenty of fans, but you know, your average fan wants to be in the house for that game because any sports fan realizes that those are the big games. That's where um, you know, those major buzzer beaters, those historical moments happen. And so you see a lot of people. I think it's a mix once you get down to that level. Uh, of the two groups. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Small businesses are the heart of our communities and the places that we could not live without. Just think of your local florist. Whether you have been in business for generations or recently launched, creating a website on WordPress.com can make a big impact on your business. Even if you don't have experience building a website, WordPress can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of customized themes to get you started. Just pick a template and make it your own. You'll get built-in search engine optimization and social sharing. When you build your website on WordPress.com, you're part of a community with support 24-7 when you need it. Get answers to your questions and get back to getting stuff done. Come see why 27% of all websites run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash Forbes for 15% off your brand new website. wordpress.com slash Forbes. Hey everyone, I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk no action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes and don't forget to rate, review, and share. And you mentioned that Turner and CBS both renewed their deals for March Madness. How much will that increase the overall revenue for the tournament, and and when does that deal kick in? So I believe the rights fee has been increased starting next year, and that deal extends uh, another eight years on the end of the deal. So that runs now through 2032. So that's quite a bit of time that these two uh, companies have the rights locked down. And that increases the uh, revenue to the NCAA 
by about $250, $300 million a year. And is part of this new deal the continuation of Turner and CBS having the streaming rights? Because you know you go around and you, and you walk around the office. A lot of these games, particularly early on, of course, are played during the day. And uh, that's when everyone's following their brackets and, and looking to see how their teams are doing in the tournament. So presumably a, a lot of the uh, viewership early on is really on mobile devices from streaming. Absolutely. Streaming is huge. Um, just let me give you an idea of that. So two years ago, 2015, the tournament had 81 million uh, total streams for the whole tournament. This year, just through halfway through the second round, 75 million streams. So this tournament has proven, I think, that streaming is kind of the future of sports viewership. And especially, as you said, those early rounds, the ones where games are on nonstop pretty much for the first few days, those are people at work who are either you know hiding the phone under the desk or have the browser window minimized, and they have the games on. And so I think you know second round streaming this year was up 67% over last year. So streaming has become a huge part of the business. And I think an interesting thing that I noticed this year in streaming the games in the first round is that the NCAA is also able to sort of force viewers to watch commercials, which is a big thing. Because when you think about it, a sports fan sitting at home on the couch watching the games, if game one goes to commercial, I'm flipping over to game two on whatever's on TNT or TBS or True TV, the other networks. On the online streaming, what the NCAA has done, if a game goes to commercial, if there's a game break, they lock it down so they don't let you switch to another game, essentially without you know closing your browser and reopening it. And so it keeps you there on that feed, and by forcing you... Uh, essentially to watch the commercials, I think that's a huge boon for advertisers, which is a pretty big deal considering how much money that they're spending on the tournament every year. And it's very valuable because what they can tell also is who these people are, I think, and they can zero in a lot on the demographic. So while traditional TV can count who's watching uh, and, and sometimes, you know, how many and who, they can break it down much further with, with video streaming, which is why I think these rights continue to increase in value. Let's get into the weeds here about how the economics impact the conferences that are involved in the uh, March Madness tournament. How does the money flow through the conferences from the tournament? So it's a really interesting uh, area because a lot of people assume that hey, UNC makes a run to the Final Four, they must get a ton of money from the NCAA, right? And that's not the case at all. Uh, What happens is the conferences get rewarded uh, by the NCAA for how their teams perform, and then the money trickles down to the schools through the conference distribution. Uh, So the way it works, it's a bit of a complex system. Uh, The conferences get what's called a basketball unit for every game one of their teams plays, uh, not including the championship game. And so... For you know, so for instance, using UNC again, uh, they get five units from you know starting in the round of 64 and going to the final four, and so the ACC gets those five units and they get them for six years. And each year of those six years, they get a payout uh, on that unit. Uh, so the NCAA annual distributions, you know, they pay out for academic things and academic support fund, uh, as well as what's known as the basketball fund, and so. You know, the past few years, the NCAA has paid about a quarter of a million dollars per unit per year, uh, and that number moves up, you know, by a few percentage points every year. And when you consider the fact that effectively the NCAA is paying these conferences for their last six years' worth of performances, 
at you know a quarter of a million dollars per game played, that becomes a huge number. So the you know ACC, Big Ten, um, you know your power basketball conferences make twenty million, twenty five million dollars a year from you know the units that they've accrued over the last six years, and that scales down to you know just uh, single digit millions for your smaller conferences who are obviously going to send just one team a year maybe. But still, I mean, the SEC, Pac-12, those guys are still in that 17 to $20 million a dollar a year range. So really, it's, it's like a rolling average, if you will, cumulative games that are participated in by schools in a conference. So consistency really pays off. If a conference has teams in the tournament year after year, it really bolsters the amount of revenue that that conference gets from the tournament. Absolutely. And I think that you see it's kind of a build-up effect where you see that, you know, last year the ACC set a record. They they earned 25 units in last year's tournament, which is a huge deal. You know, that's a tremendous amount of money coming in over the next six years. And then this year, no surprise, they sent nine teams to the tournament, the most that the ACC's ever sent uh, and one of the highest in history. And so I think you see that kind of build-up effect that as more money comes in, these teams become more successful. And it really is, as you said, you know, a matter of maintaining that success. An interesting thing, actually, is you know, when the Big East split into the American Athletic Conference and now the new Big East, those units went with the American Conference, which is you know, unique. Usually the units stay with the old conference, uh, and the teams kind of move on without their units. But because the American has that backlog of units now on their books— you know, they've been entitled to pretty huge payouts for the past few years and will be for years to come now because they have that kind of future earnings locked in. That's fascinating. Why did they make that exception, you think, for that conference? That was just the result of, you know, the negotiations that went on between them because that was involving things like where the Big East tournament would be held and I guess which rights would be going where. I'm not sure exactly what part of the negotiations led to the units going with the American teams as opposed to staying in the Big East, but it was a tremendously valuable component of it that they could walk away and take, you know, pretty much, you know, $25 million a year from the NCAA with them. And we're taking a quick break to say thanks to our sponsors for making the Forbes Sports Money Podcast possible. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Everybody loves honey-glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration, and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stocking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My hunch always was, although I could never prove this, was that it may have had something to do with the fact that, you know, we've seen a lot of schools switch conferences over the last seven, eight years. Usually, it's to get into a conference better for football, right? So you've seen, you know, whether it be the Big 12, uh, the SEC, and so forth. The Big East, however, was really a conference that was always known for basketball, not football. So it seemed like a good exception to make given that the American Conference really was coming from the Big East to really, if you wanted to be fair, that was their gravy, was basketball all along. You know, I remember you go back to when the Big East was fabulous with Georgetown and St. John's and Villanova. You had all these great basketball schools. So it seemed like it would have been a little tough taking away the basketball units. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that was their main, uh, their main moneymaker there instead of football. What about individual schools? You know, you mentioned they accumulate these chips for each game they play in the tournament and how that benefits the conference. Is there a benefit to the individual school? 
Um, not, so not directly from the tournament, or I shouldn't say that. I should say very, very minimal directly from the tournament. Because if you think about it, because the money you earn is split up over six years and then is split up across all the conference members, you're seeing a very small percentage of that direct NCAA payout. Money that goes to, say, the Big Ten is going to be split up over six years and then split up 14 different ways so all the schools get their cut. But the schools that do well earn in other ways. So it's not just that payout, but it's that by doing well, you create fan interest. So season ticket sales and regular ticket sales for the next season uh, go up. Merchandise sales go up. Uh, probably the biggest area is donations from alumni. It's been shown, you know, uh, so Louisville, for instance, leads all schools in donations from alumni. And that's because, you know, they built this new arena and they have this new money and new facilities. And they've used that to create a team that's been tremendously successful. And so winning kind of begets donations, which begets more winning. That's, that's essentially how the teams profit off success in the tournament. And I think a great example of that is Wichita State. You know, I think they made the tournament in the late 80s. They made it once in 2006. No one really considered them a threat. 2013 rolls around, and they go, you know, they kick down the door and make a run to the Final Four, break everyone's brackets, basically, uh, and have this tremendous success on the court. The funny thing is they actually lost money that year, and they were you know, a profitable team. They lost money that year because of the expenses associated with a deep tournament run, you know, increased coach bonuses, travel and lodging for the team, things like that. But in the years since, success they've never seen before. Last year, they had revenue of $8.7 million. Uh, Not only is that a record for the team, that's up 60% from 2013, the year of their tournament run. Last year, they also posted profits of nearly $2 million, a record for the team. So that's, you know, I think a great example of how success in the tournament leads to financial success, that it's kind of this building thing in the future that the team will generate more revenue and more profits uh, based on that success. And as I mentioned, you know, the money helps winning and Wichita State hasn't missed the tournament since. And so I think that they're a team that's, you know, to be taken seriously kind of on the court and off the court, you know, financially, and it's largely because of success in the NCAA tournament. As I look at uh, college basketball today, you know, it's basically one, maybe two years that the really good players will stay with the school before they uh, go to the NBA draft, you know, as opposed to 20 years ago, you know, a player would stay three, four years at the school. So a coach's role, it seems to me, you know, you look at a guy of a power like Cal Parry or Williams at, at North Carolina, th- their main role seems to be uh, more of a rec- recruiter uh, to get that top high school player for a year before they lose him, as opposed to a coach who's going to mold a player for three, four years at the same school. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I don't have any problem with it. I think that it's a great thing, and I think Calipari is a great example because he's someone who doesn't even go on, you know, doesn't do the charades of he wants to bring someone in for four years and then act surprised when they leave early for the draft. You know, he essentially goes to these players with the deal that you come to Kentucky, you play one year, you help me win a championship, I help you get drafted in the first round, you know, make you a lottery pick, you know, make you tons of money. And I think that, you know, that's essentially the reality of the way the system's built right now, that these players aren't getting paid anything in college. You know, they're one, you know, declaration to the draft away from making millions of dollars in the NBA for a lot of these top talents. Uh, and so I think it's in their best interest to, you know, use the NCAA uh, and use their college career, you know, to help themselves try to win a championship, but mainly, you know, boost their draft stock, get a better draft pick, and move on to the NBA. And so I think Calipari is a great example of a coach who recognizes that. 
he you know he realizes that's the reality and uh, he does everything in his power to help these guys how much can success in the tournament impact how much a coach earns quite a bit so the interesting thing this year i think one of the big storylines is how many of the major coaches got knocked out early uh, so you know do coach Krzyzewski, he makes over seven million dollars a year calipari obviously you know went to the elite eight um, but got knocked out there by UNC. He makes $7.5 million a year. Funny thing is with those guys, you know, Calipari can't make a single dollar in performance bonuses. He's all base salary. But that's a very, very rare example. So if you're looking at the final four coaches, Roy Williams at UNC, he makes $2 million a year. And then making it to the final four adds another $675,000 um, to his pay. If he wins a national championship, that's another quarter of a million dollars. You know, similar thing with the other guys. Uh, Dana Altman at Oregon, uh, also making around $2 million a year. And Frank Martin at South Carolina, a little over $2 million, about 2.4. Both those guys can add, I think, or it's Altman can add $250,000 from a national championship. Martin can add $200,000 from a national championship. Uh, and each of them's already gotten about two hundred grand in bonuses just getting to the Final Four. Unfortunately, we don't know Mark Few's details. Uh, Gonzaga is a private school, so we don't have his contract. But I think we see, you know, just those three coaches shows you how much money can be made. Another example, a dozen of the coaches who made the Sweet 16 uh, shared among them about a million dollars in performance bonuses. Wow. And that's you know, and that's excluding four guys from private schools. So it's a tremendous amount of money coming in in performance bonuses, uh, which you know helps explain why these coaches are red in the face and screaming on the sidelines <laughs> so much when you're watching these games. You know, there's a lot on the line for them. Is it uh, sort of similar to what happens in college football? In other words... You know, you often see in college football performance bonuses, sometimes even for offensive coordinators or defensive coordinators. And then you see coaches will sometimes, if they're, let's say, at a lesser program, but that program makes a great run, makes it to a big bowl game, competes for a national championship, they'll either leave and go to a top school or sometimes become a, an NFL coach. Is something similar like that happening in basketball? Uh, I think so, to a lesser degree a bit. Um, obviously, the numbers are a bit smaller than you see in football, and the coaching staffs are smaller, so it's not as much where, you know, you'll see in college football, an on offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator um, will make the jump to taking a head coaching job at another major program because the coaching staffs are much smaller in college basketball, and the head coach takes such a bigger role, kind of proportionally. I think that's less so the case. So now, you know, as you mentioned, it's more of a uh, you know, head coach maybe at a mid-major program jumps up to a Power 5 program to run their team. Um, and so I think that, well, it'll be an interesting story this coming uh, offseason. Tom Crean was fired at Indiana, and I think that's got to be the number one program or position opening for a head coach. And so I think that it remains to be seen who's taking that job, but we may see something like that this year where someone at a mid-major program you know, kind of gets the nod and gets tapped to take over this such a historical program and powerful program. Uh, in terms of finances and on-court success, you know, even in recent history. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com backslash Forbes. How about players, you know, some players perhaps didn't have that great a season, and then the tournament starts and they catch fire. Have we seen that impact, how that player is taken in a draft and viewed by the NBA? I think it is. Uh, it depends who you ask. And I don't want to 
blow this out of proportion, obviously. You know, NBA teams are smart enough to look at the full picture and not just, you know, three weeks of basketball. But you've seen in the past, you know, Shabazz Napier, when he was at UConn, won a national championship, uh, or two national championships, but won one right before he went into the draft. Uh, Malachi Richardson at Syracuse last year, um, you know, took them on that spectacular run to the Final Four. Both those guys got drafted in the first round. Um, And I think that, you know, it's hard to argue that where they got drafted wasn't a direct result of how they performed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, And so I think that the NCAA tournament um, does have a pretty big impact on draft stock, uh, and it makes a lot of sense. You figure that these guys are in the national spotlight. Um, Even NBA teams don't have the resources to watch every college player in every, you know, in every game throughout the season. And so this gives you the best players against the best competition they'll face all year. Um, and it's, you know, not only is it a big spotlight, but it's under a lot of pressure. So you see how these guys perform, you know, when the pressure's on, when everyone's watching. Give me your take uh, as we sit here, Chris. Which conferences, schools, and players have done the most for themselves this tournament? So on the conference side, uh, the ACC uh, even though I think they had a pretty disappointing tournament on the court for them, came out ahead on the money side. Um, they'll make $31 million over the next six years um, from how they perform this tournament. Uh, a big part of that is they sent nine teams. Uh, obviously, you know, only one of them, UNC, got past the second round. Um, but, you know, there's no sneezing at $31 million. That's Not still, at all. <laughs> it's I'll, still, I'll, <laughs> I'll never sneeze at $31 million. Not even $30 million, right. I promise. So that's, that's, that's taken out. You know, that's better than any other conference. Uh, then the SEC, they sent three teams to the Elite Eight. Um, so they'll make about $28 million. Uh, and then Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, Big East, all those guys are in the low 20s. One conference I think worth, worth mentioning, the West Coast Conference. You know, not a conference that makes a tremendous amount of money when you're comparing it to these other, you know, the Power Five. This year, though, they sent two teams to the tournament, and they're making about $6 million a team, the most of any conference in the tournament. That's thanks to Gonzaga making their Final Four run. Um, but I think the West Coast Conference deserves a nod for, you know, the, the amount of success that they've had. On the team side, as we discussed, I think South Carolina's got to be number one. Um, you know, there's been Middle Tennessee. This is their second year in a row where they take out a... Power Five team, I think that helps them. I think that Oregon, you know, they lose their best player to an ACL injury right at the end of the season and yet make it to the Final Four. That's huge for them. But South Carolina, there's no debating that they're the number one team. You know, they're the Cinderella no one saw coming. And so that, I think, makes them kind of the number one uh, success story of this year's tournament. On the player side, you know, everyone was talking about Lonzo Ball coming into the tournament in the first few rounds. He shooting the lights out. But then, you know, that UCLA runs into Kentucky and, uh, you know, DeAndre Fox shows up and dominates that game, you know, dominates ball. Uh, And so it's yet to, we've got to wait until the draft, I think, to see exactly how that winds up impacting their draft stock. But DeAndre Fox, I think, might have to be, you know, kind of the biggest riser. Uh, Obviously, you know, Josh Jackson at Kansas had a tremendous tournament, uh, even though he didn't look great in their last game. Uh, you know, he essentially single-handedly took out Purdue. You figure his draft stock's got to be rising. Malik Monk, also at Kentucky with DeAndre Fox, is another guy who, you know, even in that, you know, heartbreaking loss to UNC, he was showing up late, hitting those jumpers, um, you know, tying up the game uh, at the wire. And so I think he's a guy that, you know, had a huge draft stock coming in, obviously, but may have helped it. Certainly didn't do any damage. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. 
When it comes to checkout, consumers have come to expect a wide range of payment options. Or to be more accurate, there are a wide range of consumers out there and every one of them expects you to offer their preferred payment method. You can look at this as a hassle, but Braintree would suggest you look at it as an opportunity. When you rethink your payments, it's easy to let your customers have it their way. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. We've talked about how much money the uh, networks, CBS and Turner, have paid to maintain the media rights for March Madness. I'm just curious, as an indication of whether or not it's paying off for them, what have the ratings been like on television for March Madness and and? Are there any numbers out there for what the ad revenues the networks are collecting? So advertisers last year, according to Cantor Media, spent $1.24 billion in national TV ad spending. So the ad spending is tremendous. And I believe the tournament this year has averaged about uh, 18 million viewers a game. Pretty big viewership, but you know the question is, is that a good deal? Uh, and it depends who you ask. Obviously, you know, as you mentioned earlier in this uh, in our conversation, the audience is a younger audience, millennial audience, the people that advertisers want to reach. Um, so, you know, it makes it a more valuable audience. But in terms of a cost per viewership number, that's not too great. Um, you know, advertisers look at the cost per thousand of viewers. So, for instance, two years ago, the championship game, uh, Duke, Wisconsin, drew 28 million viewers. You know, it was a huge number. Um, I think it was a record, uh, at least in recent history, for, you know, for the tournament. Right. Um, but, you know, for the championship game, the ad rate's also tremendously high. Uh, and so advertisers are spending about, you know, $1.5 million. And that works out to about, you know, a $55, $60 cost per thousand viewer number. Um, and that's really high. You know, even the Super Bowl isn't that high. The Super Bowl's around $45, you know, closing in on 50 um, So it's not exactly the biggest, the best bargain in sports. But then again, with the total audience, and the total ad spend, you know, this is second only to the NFL playoffs, March Madness. So it's one of those things where I think if you talk to advertisers, they'll tell you, you know, yes, it costs a lot of money. Yes, it's not exactly, you know, bargain spending, but you're reaching a massive audience and you're reaching a very dedicated audience and a young audience. Um, so it's worth spending those ad dollars. Here's the thing about this tournament. It's like two weeks long, right, where people are really zoomed in. So what that does for CBS and Turner is – it gives them a focus. People are tuned in to those networks for two weeks, and it's valuable lead-in programming for other shows that they have. So not only are people tuning in for basketball, but they're seeing promos for other shows on CBS, on Turner. In a way, they're sort of getting this free advertising. And unlike, say, for instance, uh, the Super Bowl, uh, which is one game, obviously, or the World Series or the NBA Finals, which could go a week. This is over a much longer period of time. So I think there's a lot of sort of intangible value in that, which makes their uh, big payouts to the NCAA worth it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, even if you look at people talk about how gambling is a big thing for sports because, you know, that's the fans who are really dialed in and really care about the outcome. Everyone in the world has a bracket. And, you know, it's not putting money on it, but it's you have a rooting interest now. And so everyone in the world has a rooting interest in every game in the first two rounds, pretty much. Uh, and so, like you said, I think everyone's kind of dialed in. Everyone's focused. They want to watch the games. They want to see the outcome. 
uh, and ask any sports fan that you talk to, and they're probably sick of seeing Coca-Cola ads because that's all they've seen now for three weeks is watching Coca-Cola ads in every commercial break of every game, it seems. Um, and so I think that you're right, that, you know, because it floods, you know, the sport fan interest and these advertisers are able to kind of flood the ad inventory, they're able to dominate that area and get a tremendous amount of engagement with viewers. Chris, it's been great having you on. Uh, thanks a lot for helping us sort out the business of March Madness. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.